Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. It's always great to visit with my friend Rabbi Lipman and study the Word of God together. Rabbi Lipman, hello my friend, how are you? Thank God, doing great and always good to talk to you. Let's jump right into this week's Torah portion. Balak is the way we pronounce it in Hebrew, B-A-L-A-K. This was the name of the king of Moab, and this comes from the weekly Torah portion covering Numbers, chapters 22, 23, 24, and part of chapter 25. And what happens is that Moab's king, Balak, was terrified because he was afraid that his people were going to be attacked and destroyed by the people of Israel who were about to enter the promised land and take possession of the land of Canaan. And so what happens is he didn't think he could defeat Israel militarily, so he tried to find a spiritual way, a curse upon the people of Israel. So Balak calls on Balaam, who is a sorcerer or a diviner, to bring a a curse against the people of Israel. And we're going to go through a long conversation that they have and a bunch of exchanges back and forth, but kind of set the scene for us as we get into the story. You you have to ask yourself, the, the kings of the area were the people of Israel marching through. Presumably, even though they didn't have internet and they didn't have smartphones, presumably they're aware of the fact that a few million people are marching through the desert, they've left the Iron Curtain of Egypt, they've split the sea, they're aware of things that are happening, they're also aware of the military victories that the people of Israel just had in in the end of last week's portion, and they're terrified. They're terrified, they don't know what's going to be, and they don't know how to defend themselves. And quite amazingly, this king of Moab, Balak, reaches out to this sorcerer. By the way, in our tradition, Bilaam is actually a, a, a prophet, a non-Jewish, a Gentile prophet, who has lots of powers and says, let's go curse the people. And the hope was that perhaps the God of Israel would not be able to protect them from this approach. And therefore he hires Bilaam and this entire story begins to unfold. So the idea again that the king of Moab would try to defeat Israel with a sorcerer or with curses rather than militarily. So what he does is Balak asks Balaam to come to Moab and to curse Israel. Maybe to have that be the way to defeat Israel or maybe that it would just weaken the armies of Israel so that militarily Moab could defeat them. And so Balaam receives this delegation, these messengers who came to see him on behalf of the king and what he said was i have to go determine the will of god that the pagan sorcerer wanted to see what the will was of the one true god because he even understood god was more powerful than any pagan idol out there this is an incredible moment where on the one hand they're they're scheming to try to defeat this god 
On the other hand, he says, I got to see what God's will is. You, you see from here so clearly how aware they were of this one God and how they were uh, afraid, but still hoping maybe there's some angle that we can make this work, which just uh, reminds us again of human nature. You can have a recognition of God. You can know that he's there. You're even communicating uh, with him. And yet you still hope that maybe you could defeat his people. Numbers chapter 22, verse 9. God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent a word to me. So God is not distancing himself from the false prophet. Instead, the Lord is having a conversation with the false prophet. Why do you think the Lord would be motivated to participate in this? Well, we're going to see a little bit more at the end of the story what God's ultimate plan was and how it's all going to be turned on its head in Israel's favor. But I think you see from here, you know, God, when Adam first sinned, God came and said, you know, Ayeka in Hebrew, where are you? Back at the beginning of Genesis. He engages the person in conversation. He's trying to get the person to repent and not do the thing which is wrong. God is there to try to turn non-believers into believers, and he's giving Bilaam a chance over here uh, to try to own up and do the right thing. So he engages him in conversation and tries to steer him towards the right path, hoping uh, that he will do so. And again, remember, according to our tradition, this non-Jew was a prophet. He did have the power of prophecy, and God is now trying to turn that in the right direction. So we get to verse 13 of Numbers chapter 22, and Balaam, the prophet, says to the representative of the king, go away, I'm not going with you. God has told me not to participate in this, and Balak, the king of Moab, doesn't accept that. So he sends the representatives, it says, more numerous and more distinguished. So they came back and said, we're going to pay you a lot of money to come and put this curse on the people of Israel. And Balaam answers in verse 18, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. So the first thing you say is, wow, he's not even going to do it for a whole bunch of money. And the second thing you notice is he calls what we would say is Yahweh, the God of Israel. He calls him the Lord my God. That's a pretty personal statement for this foreign person to say. It's, it's an incredible statement, which again uh, creates the, the question mark about how he ultimately does move forward and try to do this. But it does make you realize that there was definitely a process that was going on during that time of even in the non-Israelite world coming to some level of recognition of God. If you remember, when you go back to the Exodus for a moment— Uh, God said that he's doing all the miracles and all the plagues for two reasons. One was so that the people of Israel should know who he is. But he also said in Hebrew, the Yadu Mitzrayim, that the Egyptians should know who I am. There was a goal of spreading monotheism and spreading a belief in God and trying to wean people off paganism. And you see in Bilaam's response that to a certain degree uh, this was happening. They were still confused. They still weren't 100% in, but his words definitely show you that he saw powers and did recognize this God. 
So we continue to look at Numbers chapter 22, verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. So Balaam, the false prophet who's listening to the true God, agrees to go with the people representing the king of Moab, Balak. And it says now in verse 22 that God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And we get into this crazy story where Balaam, the false prophet, is riding on his donkey. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way. So he turns off and goes into the field. Balaam strikes the donkey. And the angel now stands in the way of the narrow path in the middle of the vineyards. There's a wall on both sides. So the donkey presses against the wall and makes Balaam's foot get injured against the wall. So he strikes the animal again. And then you keep moving further. And it says in verse 26, the angel stood right in front of the donkey. So there was no way to go around. So she just laid down and Balaam was angry and struck the animal again with a stick. And here we get to the amazing verse 28. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you strike me these three times? So first of all, before we get into that, I'd like to ask you, Rabbi, do you see a connection, as I do, God allowing a donkey, an animal, to speak to a person? This reminds me of the serpent, we believe Satan, the enemy of God, in Genesis 3, an animal, a non-human, being able to speak to a human. Do you see a parallel there? There certainly uh, is a connection there. There certainly is this idea of God can do anything that he wants to do if there's a specific purpose for it. And certainly the serpent speaking, uh, there was a very direct purpose there. And over here, God knows people's intentions. And God knew that Bilaam said yes to going, but that his goal was to actually curse. And God wants to now give Bilaam the message that you can't do whatever you want to do. I'm the one who has control even over the words that come out of your mouth. One thing which most human beings assume that we have complete control over, and God wants to understand a one God is not a polytheistic world where you have a God of this, a God of that. I have control over everything, including what comes out of your mouth. And you want me to show you that? I'm going to create the scenario now where your donkey is going to turn to you and speak to you. And that was supposed to, in the most vivid way, give Bilaam the message of the control that God has over every single thing in creation. You said that God was aware that his heart was turning evil, that he wanted to bring curse or injury to the people of Israel. We also know that Balaam's heart was greedy. He was looking for what we learn about in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 of the New Testament. He loved the wages of wickedness. So this was not just a desire to curse Israel, it was a desire to make money and to be greedy. And that was the other reason I think that the Lord was, was preventing him from moving forward in the way that he did, which was an angel of the Lord blocked the path and the donkey, who is part of God's creation, has the ability to see the angel's presence when the false prophet Balaam did not. So again, we're back to chapter 22, verse 28. Why have you struck me these three times, says the donkey. And Balaam says, because you've made a mockery of me. If I had a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. 
The donkey, still speaking, says, Am I not your donkey in which you have ridden all your life? Have I ever been accustomed to do this to you? And the man replies to the animal and says, No. Verse 31, The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel standing in the way, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel now says, Why have you struck your donkey three times? I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me, or it was against the will of God. But the donkey saw me and turned aside these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have killed you and let the donkey live. And Balaam said to the angel, I have sinned. I did not know you were standing in the way against me. If it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. And the angel said, no, go with the man, but only speak the word which I will tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. Comment on the apparently three-way conversation. A man, <laughs> an angel, and a donkey. I mean, just as you were describing the scene, Pastor, just hearing you describe it, it, it brings a chuckle and a smile to your face that this great leader who people are turning to for these magical powers is now engaged in this conversation with a donkey. And you ask yourself, you know, what else does it take for a person uh, to recognize uh, the message that God is trying to share with him? It's not until he actually sees the angel that he actually starts to come around a little bit. But in the meantime, he's engaged in conversation with a donkey and still doesn't get the message. It just shows you how far, how stubborn we are to not accept the word of God and to not accept the reality and the control of God. We want to be so independent and we don't want to accept it. We'll find any explanation possible. You know, I ask myself all the time, just things that we see in quote unquote nature, the incredible wisdom and the miracles of daily life, of childbirth, of other things that we see. And yet there's a world where people don't see God there. I think you see that in this message. Until he saw the angel in front of him, he did not uh, turn about uh, at all. And that's uh, an image which I have in my mind. Uh, and yes, I do believe what you said before, which is something which the Judeo-Christian ethic certainly shares, how he might have been blinded by the greed, by the money that he was going to be paid. There could be a bunch of reasons, by the power, by the control, by the honor. Uh, but ultimately, until he actually saw the angel there in front of him, he wasn't budging from his original position. Finally, after that weird conversation of an angel, a donkey, and a man, the prophet moves forward, and he finally arrives to Balak, the king of Moab. And the king says, why are you late? I sent for you a long time ago. And he replies to him and says, I have come now to you, and am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, I shall speak. And so they go to the first location, Kiriath Huzoth, and Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep. Then in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to the high place of Baal, the false idol, altar. And he saw from there a portion of the people. And so that gets us into chapter 23. And the prophet says to the king, build seven altars for me and prepare seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken. And they offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. So the first thing I notice here is the king is willing to do pretty much whatever the prophet says. It takes time. It takes money. It takes effort. He's sacrificing his animals. And this is going to be only the first of three locations where this happens. The king will do anything he can that the prophet says in order to reach his goal of cursing the people of Israel. It just gives you a sense of the desperation 
uh, that they felt as the people of Israel were marching forward, the fear which they had of what this nation and this God uh, was capable of doing to them. You know, again, you, you ask yourself, do they really think you're that afraid? You're putting yourself out that much. Do you really think you can defeat him? And once again, you see that human nature is yes. Uh, they do believe that they have that power. Like you pointed out, I think it's a great point, which is not talked about enough, how much effort Balak and money was willing to put in to making this happen, how much he believed that Bilaam had this power. It's quite remarkable uh, to see, and the Bible gives very vivid detail about what they went through in order to try to make this curse come true. So there's these four major oracles or speeches that Balaam is going to give. And the first one occurs here in chapter 23 of Numbers. And God told the false prophet what to say. And he says in verse 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? In other words... I'm not going to put a curse on these people because God has chosen to bless them. And this is not at all what the king wanted. So in verse 11, the king says, why have you done this to me? I told you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. And the prophet replied, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? So this is not going at all like the king of Moab had planned. This is going very badly, and now you start to see what God's intention was. God wasn't going to just stop Bilam from going. God is time after time trying to show the world, but also the people of Israel, his involvement, his role, his control. And over here, he literally is taking over the mouth of this prophet of this leader, Bilaam, and Bilaam is just saying whatever God puts there. So not only is it not going well, God's plan, as always, is what comes into fruition, and the message that people cannot do something without God allowing it uh, comes forth very clearly. That first attempt failed, so they moved to another place. Verse 14 of 23 says, the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah, and they built another seven altars, and they offered a bull and a ram. And the prophet said to the king, stay here for a minute. I'll go over there and ask the Lord what I'm supposed to say. And he returns back, and this is what he says in verse 18. Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, I cannot revoke it. And so the same thing is the opposite of what the king wanted happens. And so verse 25, Balak says to Balaam, Do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. And again he replies, Whatever the Lord speaks, I must do. And so what happens? The king says to Balaam, Come with me, I'll take you to another place. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God that you curse them for me from there. And so they go to a third place, which gets us into chapter 24. But I think it's such a foolish and self-centered statement. If I go over there and do my plan, maybe God's mind will change. Absolutely. And the commentaries struggle with that. They try to figure out, I mean, Balak could not have been a complete fool. What was he trying to do? What was the even thought process behind this crazy idea of we'll go somewhere else. And some commentaries say that maybe he was thinking that there are some people in Israel who deserve to be cursed, while others clearly don't deserve to be cursed. And maybe if we go from this angle 
uh, we're looking at this group of people versus that group of people. Maybe there's some way that we'll be able to curse him. And it's quite remarkable, though, that you can think that when God has clearly said, I'm not letting this happen, and yet they came up with these justifications uh, over and over again, as you pointed out. So they went to the top of Peor, and they built again seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams, uh, one on each altar. Now we get to chapter 24. Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. He did not go as at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. We've talked about the way that the camp was set up with the tabernacle, the Mishkan in the middle. And so he began this third speech or third oracle. And this is what he says, verse 5 of chapter 24. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, and your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the river. And then it says, God brought you out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall devour the nations who were his adversaries. He shall crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches and lies down like a lion, as a lion who dares to rouse him. And then he says in chapter 24, verse 9, Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. And of course, we'll talk about the king's response, but that obviously is a repetition of the covenant in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that I know that you know, Rabbi, our church lives by. The one who blesses the land and people of Israel will be blessed. The one who curses will be cursed. That is originally said in Genesis 12, and now here it's repeated by the non-Jewish prophet in Numbers chapter 24. And and these verses, um, building up to that repetition from the promise in Genesis, are packed with meaning. This is an amazing scenario where you have a non-Jewish, possibly pagan prophet giving these blessings because God is forcing him to do so. And those first words that you started with, how, how good are your tents, uh, Jacob, and your dwelling places, Israel, we say that as our opening words of our prayers every day. As we walk into the synagogue, uh, we say that. This is referring to synagogues, study halls, places of prayer, places of spirituality. And we're obviously contrasting that with the pagan uh, approach. But also, our tradition teaches us that if you remember the verse said that Bilaam looked out at the camps, he saw how they were uh, encamped, and part of that was that individual tents, the way they structured their private homes, was such that the door of one tent was not facing the door of another tent, and the people lived with tremendous privacy. Uh, There was an idea of personal space, an idea of not looking into somebody else's home, that's an improper thing to be doing, and... Bilam saw this and said these words about how beautiful these dwelling places are. And we use that as a platform to build off and talk about how important it is to build a proper spiritual home, a home of kindness, a home of godliness. And that's the first thing that he talks about is that home, that home of spirituality, which all people of all faiths uh, can build. And then certainly that leads up to that says those who bless Israel are blessed, those who curse are cursed, because if you connect to that, if you connect to that idea of spirituality in your home, in your prayer places, then you can also uh, be a part of that blessing from God. 
the promise of God to bless those who bless the people of Israel given in Genesis 12. It's repeated here in chapter 24. As Rabbi Lippman says, we get to participate in the work of God among his people and his land, and those who oppose that will be cursed. And that's exactly what happens in Numbers 24, verse 10. The king, Balak's anger, burned against Balaam. He struck his hands together and said to him, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. And the prophet said, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. Now this is a great statement of faithfulness to God from the non-Jew who says, if God tells me to do it, I will do it, period. And I think that it's supposed to be a very, very clear lesson uh, to people of faith, Jews, Christians alike. If you know, The story obviously is a historic uh, event that took place, but it's being told here for us to learn from. We're supposed to read this and it's supposed to do something inside of us. And if we have exactly as you just painted it, a, a essentially non-Jew but non-believer on some level who's coming to this recognition and saying this with such clarity, how much more are we supposed to realize that we cannot do that which the Lord doesn't want us to do? We cannot speak that which the Lord does not want us to speak. It's something which we have to drill into ourselves every single day and then start our day with the recognition of what God actually does want from us and then try to live according to that. At the latter part of chapter 24 of Numbers, this what's called fourth discourse or fourth oracle of Balaam. And he begins to say, this is the one who knows the words of God, who knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty. He says, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. He shall crush the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, shall be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and shall destroy the remnant from the city. And it says, He looked at Amalek and took up the discourse continued and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. He looked at the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Your dwelling place is enduring. Your nest is set in the cliff. Nevertheless, Cain shall be consumed. How long shall Asher, which we believe is Assyria, shall be? Nevertheless, uh, it says, How long shall Asher keep you captive? And he looked up to the discourse and said, Alas, who can live except God has ordained it? Ships shall come from the coast of Kittim and shall afflict Assyria and shall afflict Eber, and they shall also come to destruction. So Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. So this fourth edict is supposed to be a prophecy about the future. And Rabbi, those of us who believe in Jesus and remember the story of the star announcing the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, we see this, a star shall come from Jacob and a scepter shall rise from Israel. In verse 17, we see this as a messianic prophecy. There's no doubt that Bilaam here is touching on things in the future and certainly open to interpretation. And, you know, we certainly see it as describing things that will happen in the Messianic times as the Jewish faith understands it. 
And that's an area where we can disagree in terms of interpretation. But the most important thing is that we're seeing it as God sharing a message with us uh, for the future. And I actually want to just mention one part of a verse that you just mentioned, where it says that Bilaam went back to his place. We understand that as a statement of, despite everything he just experienced, despite the open revelation of God putting blessing into his mouth, not to curse, being able to do anything that God didn't want him to do, he ultimately, though, went back after that moment of inspiration. He was then going to be person who's going to try to be involved in a plot to destroy the people of Israel, which just again shows you how you can even have these moments of clear revelation and open inspiration, and you still have to do things to hold up, or else you just go back to your place from before. So we come to the end of this week's Torah portion, which is the beginning of Numbers chapter 25, and we're back to the people of Israel. The last few chapters that we've been reading really involved people other than the people of Israel. This was the king of Moab and a false prophet of Balaam. And so we're changing scenes and you get to chapter 25. Israel remained at this place. They were camped Shatim, it says, and they began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So what we have here is the tragic but common practice of the people of God being influenced by ungodly people and welcoming the paganism or the idolatry or the sin into their own lives. And according to our tradition, Pastor, and this is quite remarkable, after the failed attempt to curse the people of Israel, and Bilaam comes forth and says, I know why we weren't able to curse the people of Israel. Because they are not sinning, because they're doing what God asks them to do. What we need to do is create a scenario in which they will sin, and then the curses will befall them, and then they'll have plague. And they do that by taking the women of Midian to come and entice them to sin, and that's exactly what plays out. And the people of Israel fall prey to this, and now they assume this will be the way to destroy the people. And because we're reading Numbers chapter 25, you see the people of Israel have fallen into sin with the people of Moab or Midian. It does not say in that chapter that Balaam was part of it. But if you were to look at a few chapters later, Numbers 31 verse 16, it says, Through the counsel of Balaam, this caused the sons of Israel to trespass against the Lord. So that's where we get the idea that Balaam, who had this encounter with the one true God has changed his mind or gone back to his paganism in the early part of chapter 25 and caused the people to sin. And because of their immorality, their idolatry, the Lord says he's going to bring judgment and punishment upon the people of Israel. Verse 3 says the Lord was angry. Verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. This is the consequence, the punishment for their sin. We get to verse 6. One of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman into the camp of Israel, into his own tent. And by the way, we're talking about the Midianites and the Moabites. Scholars tell us that the people known as the Midianites were living in the land of Moab among the Moabites. And so that's why it goes back and forth. But this person, this man from Israel, brings a false God-worshipping woman, a pagan woman, probably a cultic prostitute, into his own tent. And so it says... 
while the people of Israel, verse 6, were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting, this person brought someone into his own tent. And so Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the tent, and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman. So the plague of Israel was checked or was stopped. So Aaron's grandson, who is a priest in the line of Aaron, takes it upon himself to take a spear and kill the Israelite man and the Midianite woman who are engaged in idolatry or immorality here. Again, what we see a very harsh punishment showing the importance of defending the righteousness of God and stopping the spread of immorality. This was a major scene. This was a dramatic event here as the people have fallen into sin and God brings judgment and cursing on the people as punishment for their sin. And we're going to see, Pastor, in the beginning of next week's portion, it's going to actually identify who this man and woman was. And we're going to learn that they were leaders. The, the, the woman was a princess uh, from her uh, country, and the man was one of the leaders of the people of Israel. And that's why the people were crying so much, because they're realizing how it's all falling apart. Even our greatest leader, spiritual leader, has fallen prey, and he's now having this relationship in a relatively public manner with a princess from a pagan nation. And everything's just falling apart. And it took a person to stand up and say, enough is enough. I am not going to tolerate this. We can't sit back passively. And like you said, it's Aaron's grandson from the priests who are supposed to be people of peace and love and harmony, but there's also a moment to stand up and do what has to be done. And that's what Pinchas, as we call him, does in this moment. And it's a great, great moment of salvation for the people of Israel because it's going to lead towards the end of their decimation and the end of this plague. That brings us to the end of this week's Torah portion. It covers Numbers chapter 22, and it ends in 25 verse 9, where we just concluded the story. So we apologize to our listeners. We've had some technical difficulties along the way. But in this Torah portion called Balak, about the king of Moab trying to bring cursing on the people of Israel and failing to do so, Rabbi, wrap it up. One, one major, major theme, and, and Pastor and everybody who's listening, we've heard this theme over and over again, but it comes out so clearly in the terminology in, in this week's portion, and that is God has control. He's the one who enables us to do anything that we do. If we go against God's will, and uh, he'll either let us do that or not, but you can't do it if God doesn't let it happen, to recognize that everything we have is from him. He has control over everything. And just try to align our behavior with him. We see clearly from the end of the portion how easy it is to fall prey to enticement and to fall off the path, even if you're the greatest of leaders. And just on a daily, daily basis, starting with when we walk into synagogue for us, for, for Christians, when you start your prayers in the morning, to get that focus, have the focus on living a life of godliness, living a life according to the Word of God, and then things will work out okay. This has been another episode of the Lone Star Podcast. We always enjoy learning the Word of God together with my friend Rabbi Lippman and our listeners as well. Rabbi Lippman, blessings to you and your family, and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham next time 
to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.